Great leaders are forged in the crucible of personal sacrifice and pain. Great leaders have vision and a knack for communicating in a clear and compelling way. Great leaders seem to be working not on behalf of themselves, but of the community. And they seem to be filled with love for those they lead, and they tend to have enough charisma to make their followers love them. Great leaders accomplish great things. By all measures, today's guest is a truly great leader. Today, live from NYC PodFest in front of an awesome crowd, we have the host of Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson on Torrey Show. So you talk a lot about getting free. Mm-hmm. You and I really admire you are really focused on that. You don't get dragged down in basically the pennies of racial justice. You are talking you're always thinking about getting free at scale. So what does that look like? What does freedom at scale look like to you? What is the end goal of the work you're doing look like? I think about like when we run a sheet in St. Louis, I would have said that it was bad people making bad decisions in a bad system. And it was like sort of personal. It was like these, we need to figure out how to like convince the people and da 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 da. And I think that now, four years later, I think about this as not a system of chance, not a system of contents, but a system of choices. And it's like if we can figure out how to map the choices that have been made, I want to believe that we can set people up to make different choices. And when people say things like, you know, when we say the system is broken and then people say, well, the system is working exactly how it was designed, what we take away from that is that the system was designed. And because people designed it, we can design something else. So when I think about freedom, it's like not only the absence of oppression, but the presence of justice and joy and trying to figure out, like, if we think about this as like a, a house built but with Legos that like the goal isn't to take it off piece by piece. That'll take forever. But the goal is to like find like the, the lever Lego in the corner that's going to make like the whole side come down and like the lever Lego at the front and the back. And like, that's sort of the work. So I think about some of the big things like, you know, if I asked you, you, you know this already, I think I've asked you, but um, like in places like Virginia and Florida, theft over $200 in Virginia is a felony. Theft over $300 in Florida is a felony. In both of those states, when you become a felon, you permanently lose the right to vote. That's crazy, right? We can change that. And like that sort of seemingly small change will have a huge impact on people's lives. And the last thing I'll say is things like... Um, how many people are on a jury? You know this. Twelve. Twelve. Is that in Louisiana and Oregon, the only two states that have what we call non-unanimous juries, so it only takes 10 of 12 people to convict you of a felony. So there are a lot of people in Louisiana with life sentences without the possibility of parole on a 10-2 a vote. That's crazy that you can go to jail forever without all 12 people agreeing. And, like, those are the big levers. So I'm interested in, like, what are the biggest levers? How do we... Like change those that lead to different outcomes for everybody. So changing certain laws that will then allow more people education, jobs, you know, criminal justice, justice, those sorts of things. Some of it's laws. Some of it's like policies and practices. So with the police, you know, a third of all the people killed in the country by a stranger is actually killed by a police officer, and. A third of those who are killed by a stranger are killed by police officers. Yeah. 
So it's why what's one of the reasons why we stopped saying police brutality because brutality seemed like really sporadic and random. So we only talk about police violence because it's like a constant thing and like violence seems like it, people experience the word is constant and we were like this is constant. But so so that is real about the police and what we found is that there's just like a different system of justice for them. So I was just in Portland, Oregon, and I was meeting with the police chief and. I was talking to her about the contract in Portland, and in, in Portland, the contract literally has a line that says, police officers have to be disciplined in the least embarrassing way to the police officer in the department. And you're like, I don't even know what that means, right? Like, what's like the least embarrassing discipline I can impose? Like, and in a lot of departments, their record is erased after a certain period of time, be it six months or two years. So when we have these situations where, well, the officer shot this young man, but his record is spotless, well, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah, so in Sacramento, where Stephon Clark just got killed, the police union contract says that uh, employee discipline records are destroyed every year. And it's like, right. you know, any, when, when, any, when any of y'all were in school, your discipline record followed you all 12 years, right? It wasn't like it just got destroyed. You started off with like a clean slate every year. They knew exactly what you did when you got suspended in third grade. Miss Jones knew, right? And like, but the police, it's just like, la di da. I'm like, that's crazy to us. So, trying to figure out like how do we name those things so we can like help activists and organizers and citizens just know because what we would say is that like the truth is so damning it should radicalize you like I don't need to scream it I don't need to yell it like it just doesn't make sense and like we believe that if we help people figure out those big levers that that will actually lead to change what we try to shy away from and this is you know I think I'm only starting to understand this deeply I was just talking to somebody who um helps make documentaries. And I was saying to her, like, we don't need a million more, I don't know, TV shows or whatever that show that the system screws people over. Like, we got it. We get it. We know, right? Like, people have been victimized. Black and brown people definitely don't need that because that's like your life. You don't need it. You don't need, like, another drama about it. (laughs) What we do need are shows that, like, help people remember that this is, like, a system of choice, that, like, there were choices that were made that got us here. Like, that is what we need to expose and show. So, like, I was just in Oregon in the youth prison, and, like, I was saying to those young people, like, the fact that the mistake you made is a crime and the mistake that somebody else made isn't, like, that's a choice. Somebody, like, made that up. It wasn't, yeah. like, it wasn't like God just woke up one day and was like, that's assault three. Like, that's just not, yeah. like, this is all made up, and, like, helping people see, that's what we need to show people. It's, like, the choices that were made that led us to the outcomes, not just focusing on the outcomes as if they just like randomly appeared. Yeah. I spent a lot of time with you in a lot of different situations. And when you are in the classroom, you really come alive and you are really at home and you are a really captivating teacher. Do you in part look at your work as now you are just being a teacher for the nation uh, I think that sounds intense. I think that, uh, you know, I taught sixth grade math and sixth grade was like the best thing I've ever done. Teaching was like the most magical. Sixth graders are great. Um, sixth graders still believe in magic. I often say that seventh grade is puberty and deodorant and it is a nightmare, but sixth grade <laughs> is like still joy. And if you've never been in a group of kids who don't know they need deodorant and they do, that's seventh grade. It's real. It's tough. But sixth grade is like a lot of, a lot of joy. And you know, one of the things that I learned in the classroom is that, like, what it means to empower people. Like, I can't give you power. What I can do, though, is, like, help you find the power you have. And, like, that's what we did in math, right? It was, like, all these kids who didn't think they were smart enough and, like, da-da-da-da. And it was, like, you got this. Like, you can do fractions. Like, you can do – we can foil. You can do all this stuff. So now, sort of in the justice space, it's, like, helping people remember, like, they already have power. So I can, like, help you do it. I can, like, show you these things. I want you to have an aha moment. So you're, like, oh, I can do it. It's, like, yes. 
And like, that's what I want to happen in any classroom or like with the podcast or with anything we do is like reminding people. I was just on the phone last night with the organizers in Memphis uh, because they're working on some cool stuff. And it's like, we can, we just want to, we can help you like peel back the layers. Cause like you can do this, you know, like this isn't that I've been in a lot of rooms and let me tell you, there are a lot of people with a lot of money and power who have no clue what's going on. It's not like, it's not like they <laughs> the have like the magic the, answer. The president. Yeah, this president definitely doesn't know. No idea what's going um, on. And, you know, it's funny, meeting with Obama, we met with Obama twice. And before you walk into the room with Obama, people have a lot to say. They'll, like, got a lot to say. You walk in a room, and it's a lot of thank yous. And you're like, oh, you just said thank you for 10 minutes. What you have saying thank you for? It's like <laughs> the police killing people. Um, so trying to make sure that protesters and activists are just set up to, like, tell the truth wherever they go. Now, I, I, I want to talk about teaching a little bit more. Because you have always a compelling uh, sort of things to say, but the way you say them and the way you run the class is always super captivating. So take me behind the substance into the techniques and the tactics you use to be a captivating teacher. So Teray was, I taught this seminar, I taught a semester-long seminar at the University of Chicago probably three semesters ago, and Teray was there at the beginning, which is what he saw me teach. Uh, I can't give away all the secrets. I think I'm always mindful... I was a really good math teacher because I was a really bad math student. So when they mm. got stuck, I'm like, I get it. I didn't know this either. I'm like, you're right. This was hard. So that made it easier then because it was like I could anticipate everything they get they struggle with because I struggle with it as a kid. And there were so many things I swear to God I never learned, like dividing decimals. I don't know if you any of you remember how to divide decimals, but I anybody. I remember teaching it and being oh, like, I see some hands. I don't think I ever learned that. Uh, so that was like. Yeah, I just like I really empathize with them because I was like, I don't know either. With the justice stuff, I'm always trying to figure out like how to explain it to my aunt. Like if I can explain this to my aunt, like I got it. If my aunt can't understand it, like I just did an interview with somebody in Congress and they were trying to explain this childcare build thing to me. And it's like, I don't get it. And I definitely can't explain it to my aunt. So like if I can't call my aunt and be like, hey, this, da, 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 then I then like we haven't figured out the message. So when I'm putting together stuff to teach or deliver or like talk about, I'm always trying to figure out like, how do I start at a place for like my father, my aunt, people who like aren't sort of thinking about criminal justice stuff all day, but care that they can sort of get it and they can talk about it in a way that makes sense. Like that's always my goal. So when I think about like, what's a felony? I can ask anybody what's a felony and people, most people say like murder, they say some like heinous crime and you're like, okay. And then I can say, well, theft over $200 is a felony. People are like, oh my God. And you're like, exactly, right? Like trying to, trying to scaffold it up for people. Theft over $50 in Oklahoma was a felony up until 2001, which is crazy. So you think about the way the system has sort of screwed people over. Most people get the system has screwed people over. They haven't thought about like how we got there. And I'm always trying to like make that connection for people. Mm. I love that empathy is, is core to your philosophy. And if the teacher has empathy for the students, then they can be much more effective. Yeah, because like I get, you know, it's especially the justice stuff is sort of hard. It's just like teaching. Everybody has a Everybody has these deep thoughts about education right now because everybody had a teacher. So people feel like they can just say whatever they, they're like, I think this. And you're like, why do you, why do you think that about standardized tests now? Like, because I was a student and you're like, well, I don't know if that's enough. And with the justice stuff, it's like sort of now, you know, four years ago it was different. But now, like, everybody's been to a protest and everybody's been to a talk and everybody. And you're like, that's, in, in some ways, that's like an incredible thing. The hard part is that, like, that alone isn't enough to equip people with, like, how do we change the system? So trying to figure out how do we give people, like, the content and, like, let people think about, 
like deconstructing and reconstructing in a way that makes sense. So we would say, you know, people say we hate the police and we're like, we believe three things. One is that like, there will always be rules. There will be people who break the rules and there will be consequences. Like we sort of believe that the questions become like, what are the rules and who makes them? What are the consequences? What are the worst consequences and who enforces the consequences? And those are the things that like people, every, everybody should be talking about. Like, I'm not convinced that the people who go get kids who skip school should be the same people to go get murderers. Like, I want to believe that we can, like, mm. build something different. Like, the, same, the people who get people in mental health crises, I don't have, think have to be the same people to get bank robbers, right? Like, we should be playing with this because, like, this is all something somebody made up anyway. Like, it's not like this is, like, natural law. Are you in favor of, the, of abolishing the police force? Yeah, I'm open to, like, I think that there will always have to be people who enforce consequences. Like, I'm not convinced it has to be the police. So I'm open to, like, whatever that looks like. I do think that as we think about abolition, it's sort of a real question about, like, what happens in the worst situations, right? Like, who responds? I'm not doubling down on the police in that. Like, I think that that could be a whole host of people. But we shouldn't, like, as we think about changing the system, we shouldn't sort of ignore the reality that some people want to do harm. Like, that is just sort of a real thing. And those people, we don't need to throw them away. We don't need to lock them in cages. Like, that doesn't need to be the consequence, but we need to address that reality. And the other reality is that some people are going to make mistakes that violate sort of our norms and our values. And, like, there should be a consequence, but there's a difference between consequences and punishment. Punishment is about making sure that you experience pain. Consequences is about making sure that you experience change, right? And those are two fundamentally different things. That when your kids make mistakes, you don't, like kick them down the stairs, right? It's not like making sure they, <laughs> stop it. It's not like, it's not like, you don't, the goal isn't like, I want you to be like in pain. The goal is like, I want you to like change your behavior in the future. And those are like, that's the fundamental axis. I mean, it, there is a tricky sort of thing, right? Because the police and the criminal justice system in and of itself are criminogenic, right? They, you know, over time, they help produce more crime and more criminals. So if you, if you eliminate them or severely reduce them, then you will eliminate some of the problem. But there are people who are bad actors who are going to try to game the system, who are going to use violence and these sort of things to game the system. So what does a post-police world look like to deal with that fringe of society that cannot be reformed? You know, it's something I, before I sort of answer directly, I'll say that people ask me all the time, like, why is the right so good at messaging? And it's like, the right isn't necessarily great at messaging, but when you think about Make America Great Again, that that's about recall and memory, right? They're trying to take us back to a time that we've already experienced and they're, they're recalling that imagery and that language. And that's sort of easy, right? We've, we've lived through like Jim Crow and enslavement and all that stuff. So like that imagery is something that people already understand and know that the question of like the world we want to live in takes like deep imagination because we've never experienced that before. So it is sort of this hard thing that like as much as all of us probably think that like everybody deserves health care and single payer and all that stuff. Like none of us have ever experienced it. Like we don't know what that looks like in this country that like you just, everybody is a doctor. That's sort of new. So with the police, it's like, I don't, I don't necessarily know exactly what it would look like, but I can dream about it. I think that we could totally create a system where instead of calling the police on kids who are like hanging out in the corner and sort of being annoying, which is like kids, uh, Somebody would call like three round one and be like, hey, like this after school provider, can somebody go like talk to those kids and see if they could be in a program? Totally crazy way to be in community, not a community sort of that we've ever known. But like we could do that. Right. Like that could be real. And I'd love for the police. If the police enforce things equally, I think we'd have less of a problem with them. Like 
all those white people stealing money on Wall Street, like arrest those people, right? Like if that was happening all day, I'd be like, yes, police. But that's not what's happening. You know, like the disparities are so deep and it's not like black people are committing more crime than people of color. We've just criminalized uh, communities. I was just with the mayor who was like, DeRay, community policing. And I was like, community policing isn't really community policing if they're not going to be in the richest parts of your city, right? Like if little Timmy doesn't have to see the police every day when he comes off that bus in his affluent community, then don't talk to me about community policing. Like if that's not what it looks like, any alternative is really you just dumping the police in black neighborhoods. And like, that's just not, there's nothing innovative about that. There's nothing healthy. And like, you shouldn't need to high five my kids to not kill them. That's like a crazy notion. (laughs) And it's not, I mean, it's not only about that they are there, which is part of the problem, where they are placed, that's part of the problem, but how they engage. And quite often how they engage in black and brown communities makes any situation worse, right? They come in like cowboys, their only tactic generally is is violence or the threat of violence or the threat of jail. They don't have a, a wider variety of tactics to be able to deal with people in, an emp- in the empathetic way you talked about uh, that teachers need. Or they might have, you know, I'm open to like acknowledge the fact that like police officers play football and like have cookouts and community. Like I, you know, I see that stuff. I'm not like, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just not convinced that those things are necessary for you to, for you not to harm people, right? Is there something about the nature of policing in and of itself that spoils people and thus makes them, that, that amplifies their biases, that they, you know, that we all have bias, right? But is, is there something about being on the force and coming in contact with, you know, people who are generally at a difficult moment in their lives? Is there something about that that is pushing these people to commit these, uh, these acts? I think the police would totally say like that they want to make sure they come home every night and that it's a dangerous job and that the whole profession is geared towards crisis. I think that that is like definitely what they'd say. And I think that that's actually what you see in the media that you you can't name or maybe you can. You can't. You can't name like three shows like that weren't comedies where the police didn't just randomly enact violence on people like. You think about shows like, you remember Cops, uh, Cops for sure, but Bad Boys? Remember the movie Bad Boys? Yeah. It's like if you watch Bad Boys again, just like, just like try and tally the number of people they just like shoot, run over, like run into, blow up, like in the name of getting the bad guy. It's sort of incredible that we all, that we watch, like we watch so much of that stuff for so long. Even Bright, that new not amazing movie with Will Smith. <laughs> um, well, what about The Wire? I'm from Baltimore, so I didn't really finish the wire because, like, it was it's home, you know. It's like it's like you would take your black card, sorry. but you're Jeray, so it's platinum. I love it. I love David though, um, who wrote the wire, good friend. Uh, but I just didn't finish it. Well, you don't even have to finish it. It seems like the police there were portrayed with a little more complexity, and they seem to be behind the curve rather than the typical cop who rolls up and just you know. But you think about even Bright, like I was watching Bright, which is like a newer comedy, sort of a movie that came out post-protest. And like even the orcs is what they were called, yeah. right? The orcs. Yeah. They, you know, like they're just also like Will Smith and the, the other people are just like beating up people in the neighborhood and just sort of come. And like that is just what we have allowed to be a, a narrative that's OK. And like what you see is that like plays out in real life. And like I want to believe that we can sort of nip those ideas in the bud so we can change this. Because we, what we would say is that, yeah, people make mistakes all the time. And that the consequence for the mistake, like there are very few things, if any, where it should be death and almost none where it should be execution. Yeah. Right. That like, sure, they stole something. They did something bad. And like we should figure out how to do something and respond to it. But I'm not convinced that it has to be death. 
We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So if you really want to talk about the building blocks of success, we got to talk about underwear. The first thing I put on in the morning is my underwear. If my underwear doesn't fit just right, if it's not snug and staying in place, then my day is kind of ruined. I got to have great underwear that just stays close to me all day and keeps me private. And if you catch a glimpse of a waistband, it's a pop of a cool color and not some stale name brand. The guys at Saks sent me three tight-fitting boxers last week, and I've been loving them. Thanks, Saks. They look cool. The fabric is really soft and comfortable. It stays dry. It's breathable. And they have this supportive design thing they call the ballpark pouch. I think you can imagine what that is. It just makes everything come together nicely. I pull these on, and I can go run around and go play tennis or sit at the table and write or drive the kids to school and back, and that's pretty much my day. Underwear 
is like a referee. You want him there to make sure everything goes right, but you don't want to have to think about him. If you're thinking about him, it's because he's not doing his job and he's distracting you from yours. Underwear should fade into the background like, hey, I got up this morning and the first decision I made was right. And everything's cool down there. I really do like this Saks underwear. That's real. So I want you guys to try it. You get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase if you use my promo code TORE. To order a few pairs of Saks underwear for $5 off, go to saxxunderwear.com, promo code TORE. That's saxunderwear.com, promo code TORE. So we've all seen all these videos of black folks getting killed by police all over the country. I'm sure you've seen more than all of us. You're on the front line. You've seen all of them. You're deeply invested in all these stories and talking to people who are in pain. And what is the spiritual impact on you of seeing over and over all these snuff films and talking to all these people who are in pain and it must weigh on you. It's funny. Somebody sent me an Instagram message the other day that was sort of like when Stefan Clark got killed and they were like, to Ray, um, you haven't posted about him. And I said, you know, like I do, all I do is deal with death and loss, right? Like I like death and loss is sort of like part and parcel with this work, whether people are like losing opportunity or losing access or like losing life. And Instagram is like the one place where I'm just like, I can't, I like can't do that. So like Instagram is like, my Instagram is like just random fun pictures. Cause like, it's the one place that's not sort of death and loss. I think a lot about, you know, the 50th of King's uh, assassination was recent and, you should watch The King. There's a new documentary on HBO called King in the Wilderness, which you should definitely watch. And I was watching that, and um, I was thinking about the significance of King in the church. And you think about the importance of the call for moral courage. Like, King had a—like, half of it was about moral courage, and that sort of the half—the other half was about sort of concrete system and structure stuff. But there is a real sort of anchor about— like, how do you ask people to make moral commitments that requires the presence of God? And you think about the movement today is that, like, it just wasn't born out of churches. Like, churches just haven't been a pivotal role in the way that we've organized. And sort of the consequence of that is, like, what does it mean to win? When King talks about winning, it is always salvation. It's always a win sort of greater than this world. It's a win, like, always tied to a belief in God and a belief in justice that is not rooted sort of in earth. And we talk about winning. It's like very earthly. It's like a very earthly sort of win. So when I think about this question of like, how do we process death? I I think that we're all trying to figure it out and not sort of wrapped up in the presence of God. For me, I try not to watch as many videos anymore. You try Uh, not to? Yeah, I watch some of them partly because when we're trying to help activists sort of tease out how to respond to. So like the Alton Sterling video was crazy if you haven't seen it. And you know, we watched it because we were trying to, we're helping the activists there sort of write a response to the Louisiana Attorney General. So we needed to like look at the language and listen to it and, and sort of just respond to some of this stuff. Because I don't know if you read the Attorney General's decision, but I won't bore you with this court case, Granby Connor, but literally experts in the decision, they write like, they're like, we could see Alton's right pectoral muscle move. Therefore, we knew he was reaching for the gun. You're like, really? You could see his right pec. That, that is like how you, and both experts sort of said that. They were like, we saw his pec move, and that's how we could see that his body was moving towards the gun. And you're like, okay, that's crazy. So we had to watch the video to like see what they thought they saw, right? 
So that's why I watch them now, not to like understand or believe, but to like process it from like an evidence sort of perspective. Uh, and I try not to, I, I don't know, it's hard. It's hard to take them all in. And, you know, we get a lot of flack in the movement community because we were sort of pro body cameras. It's really we're pro video footage. And the hard thing about the video footage, despite all the body cameras are flawed in a million ways, is that there are almost no accounts where an officer has ever been even remotely held accountable without video footage. So it's sort of a hard thing that like the absence of video guarantees the officers are off. The presence of video doesn't guarantee much, but it sort of increases the likelihood that something might happen. And so that's like a, it's like a hard sort of thing to be in. But body cameras are fascinating because what we found is that the police are actually getting trained to use body cameras just like they get like you would train somebody to use a camera. So they're being trained at like the angle and like the way to position it and those sort of things that like I think we took for granted. And we also didn't know back then that the body, the main maker of body cameras is a company called, it's like not, they're not Taser anymore. The, the, the company that you all know is Taser now is called something else, but they intentionally make the camera footage um, grainy to like mimic the human eye. So Cameras right now have the ability to be like high impact, like it could be like much better than the human eye, but they don't want the footage to be better than the human eye, so it can sort of excuse the officers. So like if a gun if a toy gun comes up, because it's a little grainy, like the like you might reasonably be like, Okay, that was that looked like a gun. But if it was like crystal clear, you'd be like, Okay, that wasn't a gun and that didn't make sense. And like who would have thought that they are like intentionally making the the film quality low? Like we just didn't know that stuff four years ago. So it's been interesting to learn like the different ways that in so many ways, like the police, we were just playing a different game. You know, we thought that we were like creating the right crisis and the police were just playing something else. But if you are a police officer or a police department and you are in control of the footage that your officers shot, um, then we have nothing. Right. I mean, like it goes back to the department. Of course, they're going to shelve footage that isn't uh, a value to them. And it's on the citizen then to make enough of a stink that they have to put it out or they could have erased it already. I mean, unless it goes to an independent body, then what are we doing? Yeah. And most of it, you know, the cost of body cameras, like the biggest cost of them is the storage. Like the cameras actually don't cost much. It's like a cheap little plastic camera, but the storage is actually what's incredible. But you're right. Like we would love to create systems where like independent agencies, like have all the footage and they could decide what comes out. Like that would actually be sort of different. But what was hard is the body camera stuff sort of happened while we were still in the street. So like all these laws started popping up and we were, you know, we were getting, we were in the street in the first wave of protests in Ferguson for 400 days. People think that we were there for like a really long weekend. It was like, no, it was a long year plus, you know? So this stuff started happening. And by the time we looked up, it was like, oops, the body camera laws in 20 cities. And we're like, we just weren't even in a place to sort of lobby because we had just gotten out of the street. But uh, let's go back to the, the, the question, see if I can expand it a little bit, because, you know, we have heard these stories of police violence in the community for decades and decades. But in the last decade, everybody has a camera. We're seeing all these things. It's given a new velocity to the whole conversation. But, I mean, like, even my son, who you know, has seen the Eric Garner tape, right? I mean, like, our children have seen them. We have seen all these Alton Sterling, Philando, over and over. Tamir, we could go on and on, John Crawford. What impact is it having on all of us that we have all these black snuff films in our short-term memory and we keep seeing them over and over? Yeah, I don't... It's... I I think for some people it is, like... uh, 
I think it is really challenging people's hope and faith. I think that that is what's happening to a lot of people. And we think about the difference between hope and faith, that faith is sort of when King says the ark bends towards justice, that's faith, right? Faith is about certainty. Hope is about possibility. What we would say is that the ark bends because people bend it, right? That like none of this is inevitable. I think that for me, the videos don't do that. The videos, I think, remind me of the urgency of this work and like the human cost of of sort of inaction. And it reminds me that, you know, right now we organize around like the loudest trauma. So like the louder the trauma, the bigger the organizing. But there's all this quiet stuff that is like ruining people's lives every day that you don't even think about. So uh, I'm like focused on the quiet things that have a huge impact. Like I was in Chicago, the biggest jail in the country is in Chicago. Uh, the Cook County Jail used to be 18,000 people in, in that jail. It's about 9,000-ish now. And in Chicago, they have this crazy like rule where if you get released from jail, uh, before your case, and you live in public housing, they don't consider public housing a house, and you're like, that's crazy. So there are all these young people who get released who like actually are detained because they live in public housing, and it's like, those are the sort of things that like the system is just operating at this level that like you don't see on the news, but is like ruining people, you know. Uh, and I'm obsessed with those. Like, how do we tease those things out? Or like, there's six states that when you lose, uh, if you get convicted of a drug felony, you lose the right to food stamps. You're like, I don't. Like, that doesn't make sense, you know? And it's those sort of things that, like, aren't as sexy as some of the big stuff. But that's, like, what's screwing people over every day. I think around the time I met you in Baltimore, in the you know, it's about four years ago, I felt like we were moving forward as a society, as a nation. Um, even in the early part of the primary, when I thought Trump was a sideshow, I thought we are moving forward as a nation. Now I think we are moving rapidly backwards. Is that your assessment that we're moving backwards now? No, I think it's just, I think it's a little slower. Trump, you know, put a wrench in everything. I think that that's like the understatement. I think that, uh, I think that there are a lot of people who didn't think Trump could win. You know, I think that they thought he was sort of like a crazy old white man and he is certainly a crazy old white man, but it's like, we had to take it seriously. I think there were a lot of people who who were like, Hillary's so crazy and so bad and so da-da-da and didn't understand that this is like a real a real thing. Like, I know activists who were like, the president doesn't matter. Everything's local. And now it's like their friends are being deported and they're like, the president matters, right? And like, there's a cost to that that I think is real. And I, I'm hoping that those people reflect. You know, people even said things like, we can afford to lose an election. We can't afford to lose our values. And you're like, what election can we afford to lose? Like, I don't know what that name one of those. Like, that's not a real thing. <laughs> so I think that that I think that that happened. And I'm interested to see what it'll look like in 18 and 20. You know, I remember being at this thing before the election and a, a big, like, Democratic strategist guy. He was like, if Trump wins... Uh, the damage he'll do will be like trying to unring a bell, like trying to undo the damage will be like trying to unring a bell. It'll be so deep. And I think that he was spot on. So I get, so that makes me nervous. I also am nervous about the way people think about injustice in the country all of a sudden is that uh, there are a lot of people who think that the history of injustice began with the Muslim ban. They're like, oh my God, the country is awful now. And you're like, now it's been bad, right? It's been bad for a lot of people for a long time. So the Muslim ban is a bad thing. There have been a lot of bad things. Today, I don't know if you saw, I just saw this before I came here, is that Trump, um, somebody told Trump that the majority of people on food stamps weren't black. And his response was, well, what are they? And you're like, this is crazy. You're like, this man is nuts. So there's a question of like when the pain isn't distributed so sort of all over the place, like he's sort of screwing over a lot of people right now. And when it becomes concentrated back on people of color, like will will everybody be starting a million organizations and marching every two days? Like 
will that happen? I don't, you know, I don't know. But I haven't like lost hope in these past four years. If anything, I've become and tried to be like more focused about it and trying to figure out, I think that there are more of us in them. I think there's more energy on our side. The question becomes like, can we organize them? I think what the right does really well is that they sort of concentrate all of the resources into like a very few things. So it's like concentrated money, it's concentrated sort of media. So like what they're doing in Florida, if you haven't seen in Florida, with all the Puerto Ricans who are now mig- like coming to Florida, is that they, the Koch brothers are funding like uh, immigration resettlement services. So like English translators, like job placement, they're funding all these like important sort of necessary services for Puerto Ricans. So that in 2018 and 2020, they know who all of them are. They have all their phone numbers and email. Yeah, like it's just they are just so insidious in a level that is like you you can't even believe this is real. And that's I think the left. Like I think we're just playing a different game sometimes. It's amazing that you haven't lost hope. And I wonder if there was a moment, at least in Ferguson, uh, during those 400 days, when your hope was more challenged at any time. You talk about getting tear gassed, you talk about, you know, getting pushed around by police in different ways and feeling attacked and being attacked by your government. Was there a moment when you look back like my faith held up there, but it was really, you know, it was it was creaking. It was it was tested in that moment. No. So I my hope sort of stayed fine. Faith was all over the place. Is that like I can't even it's hard to talk about it with people that weren't there because it feel it always feels like I was with the original set of people I was with in St. Louis uh, yesterday because it feels like we're being dramatic because it like well, it was so crazy but my hope my hope was fine my faith got tested I'll never forget um, one day we were in Mocha Bees which was like a it was sort of like a coffee shop that became a, a, a headquarters for the protesters and like in the middle of the night the police the police that's very Baltimore the police uh, uh, that's not NWA the police the, the police did, they came over the the police, um, it's funny, I'm like, the police? The police, the police sounds better to me. The the police came over to the um, coffee shop, they tear gassed the windows, they tear gassed the doors, and it was just like, this is nuts. We did the first ever successful, the first, first in the protest, successful sit-in of a police department. So like we, this was like a great example of white people using their privilege is that it was like 20 white people who like one by one went into the police department in sort of like shifts. Like they went in like in groups of one or two, started filling out forms, like asking questions. Three of us, three black people, we came in at the very end and at the very end they like locked the door because they were just like, it's too many people in here. We did a sit in. It was incredible. The police didn't know what to do inside the police department. And then they didn't know that there were like 400 protesters around the corner who were like also going to try and come in. So these protesters come around. It's like amazing. Somebody goes to open the door. The police like lose their minds. Uh, But that what was crazy about that is that because I was tweeting like that was one of my roles was to like try and tell the story on our side is that if you've ever seen people like link arms and stuff in the protest, I can never link arms because like I couldn't I couldn't type with my arms linked. So everybody else would be like in a, they'd be sort of in a ball and like I'd be the oddball out. Like I just was not linked. So this day I'm like unlinked and I'm literally, there's a police officer like right in front of me. So they're like, you got to move. And we're like, you know, we're protesters. We're not going to move. So she's standing in front of me. She puts her hand on her taser and her gun. And like, I'll never forget looking up and being like, you know, if like, 
I don't know what's about to happen, right? Like she's in front of me. I'm not linked. So like of all the people who could get, just get easily dragged away, I'm the easiest because I'm like, I'm trying to tell people what's happening. And next thing I know, somebody grabs my, one of the officers grabs my ankles and they literally just drag me to the front door and throw me out. And that's what they do to a lot of us. And those moments you're like, what is going on? Or like me and that, I got arrested the first time in St. Louis at the Department of Justice. And this is when I look back and I'm like, what were we doing? Like, this is really brazen, is that we go in and a lot of people got arrested, but for some reason, they just transported me and Netta alone upstairs. Like, there was just the two of us. So we, we went up alone. So we get up in the elevator and he, he had like, the officer had um, handcuffed her really tight. So and I'm behind them and I'm like, you need to loosen her things. And he's like, you need to stop talking. And I'm like, you need to loosen, you know, we're just like, and there's like nobody around us. He could have done anything, but we were like, we were right. So he was just like, stop talking. And we turn the corner and literally we just sit down in the hallway of the jail. And we're like, we're not going anywhere. And the man's like, he doesn't know what to do. And we're like, you know, it's funny now saying it, but I'm like, I need to see your supervisors. Mind you, I'm handcuffed behind my back. I want to talk to your manager. Right. <laughs> Literally, I'm like, I want to see your supervisor. And he's like, he's looking at me like, are you serious? And I'm like, absolutely. And we just like stay seated. And the next thing you know, it's like seven marshals come out. His supervisor comes out. And and we're like, y'all can't be rough with people. And we're just like sitting there on the floor, like blocking the whole hall. Like everything's blocked because like we just won't get up. And they're like, you got to get up. And we're like, no, like y'all got to treat people better. And it was one of those things that was and like eventually – they like literally dragged us into two cells. But for those sort of 20 minutes that we just sat in the thing, it was like, it was those moments. I think about like the power you have when you know you're right. And you're just like, you know, we'll just, we'll like eat the consequences. And that was one, that was when I didn't know that when you get arrested by the federal government, you get swabbed and they take your DNA. That was sort of crazy. I remember that we had to stand up against the wall and they like take these mouth swabs and put it in a little package. And you're like, that was crazy. So So I've had a lot of moments where I'm like, like, what are we doing? Is this the right thing? I think it's the right thing, but it definitely got challenged. And when I got arrested in Baton Rouge, and I was in jail for uh, 17 hours. And when I immediately got arrested, they put zip ties on us, not handcuffs. And my zip ties were just real loose. Like, I think the guy was tired or something. So I get on the bus and I can take them off immediately. Like, it's just not even like a, there's no, it just slides off. And I see this girl and she has her cell phone, but her zip ties are like really tight. So I'm like, can I use your phone? And she's like, yeah. So I'm like, Texting my, you know, I call my family. I'm from like, the hey, back of the truck. from the, and they're like, we just saw on the news you got arrested. I'm like, I am arrested, so don't tell anybody that I have this phone because I'm gonna get in trouble. But like, I had our phone, and it was one of those sort of out of a movie things where the, when the police came, I just put the zip ties back on, and I was really quiet. And then Such uh, a movie. when the when they were gone, I'm like, can I use your phone? And it got to the point, you know, when you're just like tired, is that. <clears throat> We were in a van, and then they took us to this other place and this other place. But I had the zip ties on for a really long time. And at one point, I have to sit down at a table and, like, go through everything on your possession. You have to, like, they have to sign this thing. And he needs my hand. And I'm, like, really tired because we've been arrested for a long time. So I just take my hand out, and I go do what he says. And he looks at me, and he's like, and I'm like, yeah. And I just put it back on. And he's like, okay. And I'm, and he, like, doesn't say anything, and I don't say anything. I'm like, cool. Because, like, I'm arrested. It's like, what, what am I going to do in the jail? Nothing. So those moments, um, those are the moments where you're like, what is happening? And that was, a thing, um, Baton Rouge was like a long, long night. We were in there for a long time uh, and the police were, I mean, the police were the police, but. When were you yeah. scared? I think the very first time I thought I was going to die in St. Louis was, um, it's like, I can't, the best way to explain this is at the very beginning, because St. Louis County where Ferguson is, is like, 
a lot of police departments. The Ferguson PD has like 50 officers, so they don't have nearly enough officers to like parole the the protests. So it was like literally every other police department around, they sort of came out. But in the very beginning, they'd never worked together before. So like, you know, police department A would tell you, get out of the street. Then you walk a block, police department B would be like, you have to be in the street. They didn't know what they were doing together. So they didn't really, they always stayed by their cars, but this one night they sort of rushed a group of us. And we all ran, and I'll never forget, I ran with, we used to run with our hands up to like show we were unarmed in the beginning, and I had to run through two police officers, like I just had to run past them. And now people, you know, I wear a vest every day, and it reminds me of the protest and keeps me grounded, but in the early days, I wore these like red uh, shorts, these like red hoop shorts, like these basketball shorts, and I was running, and I had a, a cell phone cord in my pocket, and my shorts were falling down because they're hoop shorts, like it was like an elastic waist, and I'll never forget my... I'll never forget, like, the cord was falling out of my pocket, but I was running with my hands up, and I had to run past these officers, and I had this moment of, like, like if I reach for the cord while I pass them, they might think I'm reaching for something, and, like, this might all be over, and I'll never forget, like, how scared I was in that moment. Like, I just, I remember going home and being, like, I either need to figure out how to do something with the fear, or I just can't go out anymore, because I was so afraid. Like, I'll never forget that. So that was one, and the second was, um, in the beginning, the SWAT cars, they, the SWAT cars were out a lot. And they had tear gas and shot rubber bullets, but we had walked, we had sort of ran down these side streets and I got in my car and the SWAT car literally is driving down the street with the flashlight, like looking in cars. And I hit under my steering wheel and I remember being like, this is crazy. Like, this is sort of like a crazy world that we're in right now. And those were early. That was like August the 20th, like August 20, 21st. Uh, so after at once I sort of survived those moments, I think that I sort of figured out how to manage the fear, fear. And the reality is that we were out every night. So, like, at a point, I think that I still need to, like, recover some adrenaline from back then because you sort of just were like, it's really bad. We'll go to sleep at 3 o'clock in the morning, and then we'll sort of figure it back out. Like, that was what, that was what it became. Are you scared of getting killed? I think that um, you say that so, like, you're like, are you afraid of getting killed? Uh, I try to be mindful of safety stuff. I try not to, like, let the fear do too much. So, so the FBI's visited my house, and I wasn't home. They left a business card that said, DeRay, please call when you get a chance. And my lawyer was like, do not call the FBI. Uh, so he <laughs> called them. I did. There was one moment where I was like, this might be the end, and it was sort of a recent moment, is that I live sort of, I lived in, I live in Baltimore City. I live sort of tucked away, though. Like, if you end up at the house, like, you had to try to come to the house. There's no random way you li- you come to the house. And I don't have, I totaled my car in the protest like in 2014. So I take Uber and Lyft everywhere. And I'm coming up to the house and there's a car in the driveway and there's never, like, there's no car in the driveway. And I have this moment where it's like, why is there a car in the driveway? There's a guy in the front seat. This is sort of awkward. So I get out of the car and like he gets out of the car. And you just have this moment where like sort of peace fell over me because it's like, like the world gets really slow. You just sort of focus in and it's like, if this is the end, I lived a good life. So I get out of the car, he gets out, and I'm just, like, bracing for whatever's about to happen. And he, I got sued by three police officers in Dallas and two in Baton Rouge, so he's, like, delivering the lawsuit to me, is what I realize happens in the end. So he hands me the lawsuit, and I'm like, whew, not dead, this is great. <laughs> and then um, and then in true, like, 2017 fashion, he's like, can we take a photo? And you're like, of course. Like, as I thought I was going to die. You know, I'm like, he oh, my God. you, and then he wants to um, selfie he's with He's like, can you. we take a selfie? Um, so that was crazy. I really loved you on Colbert. There's a bit right. There's a, I did a screening of the Black Panther documentary at a movie theater in Baltimore, and somebody tweeted that they were going to shoot me. And the organizers were like, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "I'm fine. Like I, you know, I generally feel okay about this stuff." Um, but in the middle of the 
screening. Literally, the police come in on the sides. They shut the whole movie theater down. It's like a whole thing because they thought the threat was real. And that was like one o'clock in the afternoon. So it's sort of awkward because every staff member in the movie theater is so afraid that they're like, they just go home. So the theater has to shut down. And I'm like, I'm not afraid. Can we finish watching the movie? So the (laughs) owner's like, yes, Dre, because you're not, you know, it's like a, so that stuff becomes more of a thing for the people around me than for me personally. I think that I just have to I try to like not stress out about it because if I stress out too much, I'll like never come outside again. Mm. When we were first hanging out a lot, you talked about this story, this article, this essay uh, that you read in the early. In defense of looting. Yes, my the, favorite essay. Everybody should read it. In defense of looting, changed my life. But yeah, what's your well, about well, it? no, no, please. I mean, the essay posits that sometimes violence is justified. Not at, violence. In, Property damage. Property, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Property damage, not violence against people, but property damage. Um, but, but please break down the philosophy because this is really important to you. And I don't want to take away the writer's thunder. You should read it. It's an incredible essay in the New Inquiry. But what he essentially said, it, it came out like early, like right after. If you remember the QT, the gas station in Ferguson got burned down, it doesn't even exist anymore. But that was sort of a seminal moment for the country to look at it. And what he sort of says is that there's no social change that's ever happened in the country that hasn't been preceded by property damage. That like the idea of ownership and property is so rooted in the American psyche that the absence of an attack on property almost always means that America won't pay attention. So his argument is that if the QT hadn't been burned down in the beginning of the protest, America wouldn't have cared. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash thrivemarket.com slash On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. That like just Mike Brown being killed and just black people in the street actually wasn't enough of a recipe to bring national attention. It was also the threat of property damage that like forced America to pay attention. And his argument is that you can't map any social change in the country that was substantial uh, without also mapping like an attack on property. And I thought it was brilliant. I was like, this is great. It was sort of one of the first real think pieces that came out in the protest, too. Like before now, it's like there's a think piece every two seconds. 
This is early. So some folks would devil's advocate that and say, well, when you are committing that sort of property violence, then you are distancing yourself from, let's say, certain white people who want to be down with your cause, but like, no, we cannot do that. Like, so what would you say to those who are going, you're, you're, I can't be down with your movement that's wrecking this gas station that's in a city I've never even heard of? Yeah, I'm always mindful. You know, people ask me a lot about the violent protesters, and it's like, we were in the street. We're in the street responding to violence. Like violence right. is what brought us out here. Right. So we would love to be home. The, the, the police were violent first, and like we came out in response. So if you want people not to sort of be frustrated outside, then like don't do the thing in the first place that that like made them frustrated. And I don't have to condone it to understand it. Like I get it. I remember being in Baltimore and. You know, I was in most of the cities in protest, and what made Baltimore so different, if, if you've seen The Wire, maybe you know, but, like, the row houses are real. It's just, like, rows of houses, and what makes that important in the protest is, A, there's nowhere to run, and then, B, there's nowhere for things to get shot, like, besides at you. So they're shooting, they're shooting like, smoke bombs, and in the other cities, like, there was space between the houses, which seems sort of, like, insignificant now, but they shot that smoke bomb, and you're like, there's not a break in these houses for 20 houses. You know, you're just, like, stuck. And you see that stuff and like, yeah, people are pissed. You know, it's like even I remember being in Baltimore when the protest first started because it was right around the corner, actually, from Freddie Gray's funeral. So we got out from Freddie Gray's funeral and then it was like what you saw on TV, like it happened all in the same sort of space. And like I was by this girl. I don't know if it's on the I don't know if Chicken Box is on the, the wire. Do you have Chicken Box on the wire? Chicken. It's like Chicken Box is like a Baltimore sort of thing. It's like chicken, French fries. Everybody calls it Chicken Box. It's like a thing, though. And I'm standing next to this girl who has a chicken box. The high school just let out. It's 300 police officers. They just blocked off the the main bus terminal. And she's eating fried chicken, real chill. It's like chaos around her. And she's like a high school junior. And so I'm like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm really hungry. It's like, okay. It's like, okay. (laughs) And she's like, I'm ready to go home, though. Like, why are you out here? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, we would go home. And it's like... You know, she's eating her chicken ready to go home. And at a point, it was like she started fighting the police just because they were there, right? Like, mm. she would have gone home. Like, she didn't She didn't super care, but it was like she didn't. She was annoyed that she was getting shot at with pepper, pepper balls, so she threw a rock too, right? And it was like, that makes total sense to me. But, like, they didn't bring the trauma. Like, the police brought it. And the, I will say those kids at Douglas, which was a school, were so coordinated. It was like, I don't know if you've been out and seen, like, the police... Um, like the plastic shields, they're mm. not body length, they're like torso length. So what the kids started doing that was actually brilliant is that they started throwing rocks, it's like 300 officers, they started throwing rocks up in the air over the police officers, so then they just like lifted their shields and then a second line of people started throwing rocks at the police officers. <laughs> and it was brilliant, cause like, you know, like they just weren't, they just, and the kids did it like really, they organized real quick and it was like, they were clearly athletes cause they just had incredible aim. <laughs> And they were, like, aiming at their feet and stuff. So, like, you see the police, like, jump in. And, like, it's just like, you guys, that was well done, you know. Uh, But they were, like, so organized. You're like, that was brilliant. But it was like they would have gone home if they hadn't shut down the single biggest bus terminal on the west side of Baltimore that, to this day, the government will not name, like, who ordered it to be shut down. The mayor won't say. The governor won't say. Because, like, that, if they had opened up the bus terminal, the protest would have never taken off. But, like, they didn't. And people looted them all and da-da-da. But, like, they couldn't go home. It was, like, impossible. And so I think about those moments a lot. That, like, we actually didn't start the, the pain or the trauma. Do you feel powerful? I think that... I feel like we all have a sense. I think that this is ours, right? I feel like this is like something we can build and make and not to be a broken record, but I do feel like 
Uh, not in the we're not in an all we we all have power way. I mean, like you're rel- like you're routinely discussed as one of the fifty most powerful world leaders, one of the fifty great world leaders by Forbes and Time and these sort of things. Do you feel as powerful as folks are saying you are, or do you look at you know Duray in the media and you go like, I like that guy. <laughs> He's a little bit different than me. You know, you might, some people think I'm powerful. There are a lot of people that hate me, so I'm, I, like, experience both of those sides. Uh, and I'm mindful that we just haven't won yet. I think I'll be, I, like, I'll be more excited about everything when we win. Is that, like, more people got killed in 2017 by the police and in 14, 15, and 16, right? Like, so the outcomes are still really bad. I think that what we did a really good job of is creating a public narrative, like, bringing a crisis to, like, everybody's sort of living room and everybody's phone, and then normalizing the idea that you can challenge the government. So, like, you think about all the people protesting now. It's, like, a beautiful, amazing thing. But, like, four years ago, that's not what people are saying. And, like, I think that the protesters helped make that real. I think I'll be proud when we win. Like, when, when like, the systems and structures and outcomes change, then it'll be like, yes, and da-da-da. And we're just not there yet. No. Part of your genius, part of your success has been about Twitter and then the use of Twitter in a really powerful, strategic way. So what are the keys to a great Twitter? You know, it happened organically, but what I'd say in hindsight is that people want to know a person. They don't want to know like a sort of, I don't know, something that feels impersonal. So like I tweet about, I need, I do need to buy a new deodorant. Uh, I need to buy a new deodorant. So I tweet about that in the same way that I tweet about like the world being screwed up, that like both of those things are real. And, you do. And like that's real. So I think that's one. You know, it's funny though, because people talk about Twitter and stuff. And it's like, remember that when we were in the street, there was no Periscope. There was no Twitter video. Like the only video we had was Vine. So literally we'd see something crazy. We'd record it. We'd step back two steps, hold the phone up to our ear and try and find like the right six seconds so we could like hear it. And like, that's what we do in the middle of like crazy though. You know, it's like, you're like, you can't really breathe because of the tear gas and like smoke bombs. And you're like trying to find those best six seconds. Like that's what we were doing back then. So that was, I remember when Jack, the CEO of Twitter, I remember when they bought Periscope, like we tested out Periscope before they'd even bought it. And like, so I remember those early days of seeing like a video take off on the internet. Uh, But I think for us, it was like just trying to tell the truth at every moment and like trying to be consistent and being thoughtful about telling a, a story. So I was trying to paint a picture of like, you could experience what it was like to be in the street just like I could. It was hot outside. It was like, it smelled like this. It felt like this. Like those sort of like, scene setting things that I thought would actually set you up to empathize with us a little better. What's your superpower? Ah, I want to believe that it's like seeing things, seeing that things can be places where they aren't already, like sort of thinking about possibility. Vision. Yeah, just like the dreaming part of it. Is that like we could build that or we could do that or we could, and like you don't need a lot of money or you don't need a lot of that. Like we can do something really cool and I think that that is fun. So, okay, Vision, what are your dreams and goals for yourself for the next five years? I'm writing a book that is killing me, so I need to finish that. Is it a memoir? No, it's sort of like using, it's a, I want to, I think about it as like a book of big ideas around sort of justice and stuff. There is, we've done a lot of research on the police that isn't anywhere else, so like it'll be there, uh, but, uh, but like not, I don't think about it as like a memoir. I'm 32, it's like, I don't know. I don't feel like I've lived long enough to write a memoir, memoir, but I do have these stories that I want to talk about to lead to like bigger things that are not just about but, me. I mean, black literature history is filled with people who had a rough life and their first book is their memoir or their autobiography. And you think about, you know, Manchild from the Promised Land, the autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, we could go on and on, like just 
black boy. I mean, like, they're young. They're not much younger than, not much older than you, maybe even younger than you. But, like, I have to tell my story because it's been amazing. Just being black in this country is this crazy thing. And here's how I'm trying to deal with it. Yeah, I just, I'm trying to figure out, like, what actually help, helps us get free. And, like, I'm, I think those things are really powerful because they help you realize you're not alone. I'm not sure that for me they have set me up to like think about how to take down and build. Like I want to figure out like how we take down and build. You know, so I read these incredible things and so I have this essay called um oh, I did this talk a while ago called Coming Out of the Quiet. This idea that I was never in the closet, I was in the quiet. Just because mm-hmm. you didn't know doesn't mean it wasn't real. And um and that essay sort of starts off, or like this version of it, because I'm not done writing, uh, starts off with like sometimes when you don't see yourself in the world, you start to think you don't exist. Like this idea of like what it means, and like sort of that's an, in, an entrance into something much bigger. So it starts with me there. Or like I'm writing about my mother. Both my parents are addicted to drugs. My father raised us. My mother left when I was three. And um, there's an essay. There's a, I used to do six-word stories on Twitter. I don't do them anymore for whatever reason, but there's a story about her that I wrote on Twitter that was, I can remember her now without sadness. She came back when I was 30. And uh, it's like I write about her as like an entrance into talk about sort of memory and like what that means. So like, that's what I try to do. Um, I probably should call my mother at some point. And where ask did her she go she in those two and a half decades? It's interesting. Like, I don't, we don't really, um, we don't really, it's like, you know, when you, you know, when, um, you know when you know that if you ask a set of questions that they might break, that's like what my mother's like. That she might break if you ask her Yeah, what like I don't to you. and my sister's like a lot less sympathetic to her. I was so young. My sister like remembers my sister's name is Tere. We're not twins, we're just black and it's not Tere. It's very confusing um, when we talk. It's like they're like, Is your sister? I'm like, No, the writer. Um but Teray remembers my mother leaving, and like I don't remember her leaving. I remember not having a mother, and I remember sort of seeing her a little bit. I remember when we were like seven ish, she she like got to take us somewhere, and like that didn't go well. My father was like, "You can never take them again." So I remember that, but then it's like I just remember like the absence of her more than the presence of her. And I remember like we said her name is Joan, and we used to call her Mommy Joan. And I remember being like eleven and being like, "Why am I calling this woman Mommy? I've never like." I just called her Joan. And like, she was like, my name is Mommy Joan. I'm like, I ain't seen the mommy part. Like, I remember being that. I remember being like, no more mommy. So those are things I like remember about her the most. And then she sort of came back. But it's like, I remember one of the last times I saw her. It's like, it just, you can, you can see the pain in her face. And like, if, I don't know, I just haven't figured out how to like fashion the like, why'd you leave question mm. in a way that doesn't, I think, come across as like a dagger. So I'm working on it though. I like need to figure it out. So we'll get back to the show in a minute, but I was talking to a rich friend of mine about how to make money, and he said, look, you can't make any real money unless there are other people working for you. You need a dream and then other minds and bodies marching along with you to build your dream into something that lasts. you got to create an idea, have a dream, build a business around it, and make it come to life by hiring other people to help you work in service of your dream. That's how you really cake up. The staff on this show is coming together nicely. I let the universe know I was taking on an intern and tons of people said, I want to intern. And now I have a bunch of people helping me out and they're doing great. 
people are coming and saying, I want to help you build your vision, that is the best. You've got to get people behind your vision, behind the thing that you want to build. You need a great team. How do you find great people? Try ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you can find your next hire. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you get so you never miss a real match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is the way to find them. Businesses of all sizes are trusting ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Torre. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Torre. ZipRecruiter.com slash Torre. Because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. So I interrupted you when you were saying your dreams or goals for the next five years. You mentioned your book, which you're going to finish in the next month or so. Um, what else for you personally? Uh, I want us to figure out how to win. Maybe I want to you fall in love. I want to do that. Maybe. It's funny. Love is like one of the only things I don't talk about publicly. So this is, you know, I'm just doing this because this is Therese's podcast. I'll talk about love here. But, um, but yeah, maybe that. What does it take? For you to fall know. in love, what are you looking I don't know. for? If, you, if y'all know somebody, let me know. I'm, I'm open. Do you have to be black? Happy, you know, I think he's trying to get me in trouble. This is going to be under people like, DeRay doesn't like black people. That's going to be the thing. No, <laughs> That's gonna be like, no there's, nothing, like there's nothing wrong with saying that I want to choose a black person or yeah, whatever. I think, I'm, I think I'm interested in dating somebody black right now. Like yeah. That's like what I want to do. Is it even possible for you to have space for love and relationship given that your work is taking up so much of your life. Yeah, I think the travel part is like the hard part. Like, you know, I was saying to you, so I, w- I was in Nashville yesterday for a lunch for my friend who just got married. Then I went home because I'm moving. I live in Baltimore. Then I came up here to do this and I'm going to leave this and go back home. And then I'm back here tomorrow for a set of meetings. So it's like a lot of a lot of travel. So I just need them to be okay with that. But besides that, I'm good. I mean, I think a lot of people would accept the travel because, it's, you know, you're not just traveling around for a silly reason, you're traveling around for, you know, I mean, they have to believe in the movement and what you're in your work to, to deal with you. Can I ask you a question? Sure. I want to talk to you because we didn't talk about this the other day. So Teray was on my podcast wow, just two really days ago. Shifting. I thought we were still talking about the issue of no, Teray no. and love. No, I He's got these, to, I got, you know, the people, sh- this is your yeah. show, but I got some questions. Mm. Um, is, I want, I want, uh, you've experienced loss recently. Yes. And, uh, I want to know how you how you process it. Um, how has that been for you both as like a son? But I think about somebody who like your gift is is taking sort of things that happen and drawing these like larger sort of ideas out of them. Mm. Like I just want to hear you talk about that. Um, yeah, my father died about a month ago, and uh, yeah, I mean the the processing has been interesting because. He had dementia, and he was he was sort of trending downward for about two years. And the last six months, I was like, he's not there anymore. He can barely talk. He can barely move. God, why are you keeping him here? Why don't you just let him be free and let him go? And 
perhaps he was in a way sort of letting us down easy because when the end and even the end we kind of saw coming like he hasn't been eating he hasn't been eating like it's it's any day now so there was no shock aspect even though I went into shock after I got the news um so there was a there was a an easy letdown but you know you you just sort of it just it never like leaves you it's sort of like it's conscious and then it's not and you know it's strange to say, but it was like my favorite funeral ever, you know, because there was a lot of joy in it for me. Um, so many people said so many nice things. And even like to see former employees, he was an accountant. He had his own firm in Madpan Square for many decades and former employees saying like he was great. You know, he did things for me in my life. And then wives of former employees, like, he was so great for my husband, helped take my husband from, like, you know, not a boy, but, like, you know, a young man to, like, a real man. And, like, you know, it, it, it was, you could really float on, you lived honorably, you know, people looked up to you, people thought a lot of your contribution to the world. Um, you can really hold on to those things and not, for me, and not wallow in sadness because uh, there was so much love for him, not just among the four of us uh, in the in the nuclear family, but you know, so many other people. Do you remember when you started to sort of see the impact of dementia? Like when you started to see that, like something is. Oh my God! I mean, I had been seeing it for a long time. I mean, I've been with my wife for seventeen, seventeen years, seventeen years. 18 years? He done missed a year, Lord. 18 years? I mean, we were together on the day of 9-11, right? I mean, like, we spent that day together. She walked home from her job in Times Square. So we've been together a very long time. And I remember uh, the woman I was with before that, like, him coming to, like, Thanksgiving or what have you at our house, and I'm afraid that on the drive back to Boston that he's going to you know, like, lose it and drive off the road and kill my mom and him. I never really talked about this, but it's like I could already see a mental slipping. And my mom and my sister were not were either not seeing it or they were not willing to admit that they were seeing it. And I'm like, he, he's different. He's not as sharp as he used to be, and you're trending downward. So, I mean, it's been a long... I, I mean, I remember him, uh, you know, a few years... He taught me backgammon, and that was something we spent a lot of time playing. Many, Are you the oldest? Years. Huh? Are you the oldest? I am the oldest. And I remember, you know, one time him coming over like three, four years ago and we set up the board because usually we would just set up the board as soon as he'd come and start, you know, attacking each other. And, and he's like, I don't know how to do this. And I'm like, what, what do you mean you don't know how to do this? And he's like, I, where do the pieces go? I'm like, what, what do you mean you don't know where the pieces go? You taught me this game. We played this game for, you know, 40 years. And he said, I don't know what to do. Um, and I was like... I couldn't even deal with it, but like, you know, this is getting really bad. So it's been a long sort of trending downward. And it was coupled with um, some of hearing loss. So it wasn't always able to tell, like, where is the dementia taking you away from us? And where is it that you just can't hear? And if there were multiple people talking at once, he couldn't he couldn't hear. So, you know, so it becomes a mishmash in the in the earpiece. So then... He's just out of the conversation. And I remember him being very dominant in those sort of conversations, very alpha, and now you're sort of shrinking. And I could, and I could see it. Uh, but it wasn't always clear what is the dementia and what is the hearing loss. Um, but it was like you are fading away and you are not the person that you used to be. Um, I have two and a half minutes 
left. So I appreciate, I appreciate I that. I have one more question for you. Not about this stuff. The second, if, if you had to write about Cardi B, what would you write about right now? Oh my God. I mean, so many things. I mean, I would just start with that. It doesn't, I don't know anybody who appears to have reached super fame quickly and seemed to enjoy it so much. She seemed to be like, I am enjoying my moment. This is so great. Um, and I also think it's an interesting uh, injection of uh, Latina, Latino culture into America, into national America, into hip hop, which has always been there in hip hop from the beginning. Uh, but she also, she reminds me of uh, like Cheetah Rivera, right? And some of the great stars from the 50s and 60s who were bringing Latina flavor to America that America wasn't, you know, wasn't immediately aware of and used to seeing. Um, then, but glad we're there at Cardi B because I wanted to ask you in the last two bits I have. What's Beyonce like in person? Oh my God! What did she smell like? Did so she smell I, you know, you know, we can't talk about Beyonce. <laughs> Beyonce is as kind as you want her to be. Uh, very sweet. You know, somebody was like, "What does she smell like?" And it's like uh, she smells nice. I don't know. It's like she, Beyonce doesn't stink. Like Beyonce <laughs> smells like you think. Tell you what, what can I say about Beyonce that won't get me sued? Um, well, no, I, you know, look. Not even, not. I know you don't want to talk Tiffany's about Tiffany's talked the most out of everybody, you know? <laughs> no, I know you don't want to talk about personally and reveal your personal relationship, but it's been amazing to see her at an advanced age for a recording artist move really from being a pop artist to being a much more political artist. And that journey has been really satisfying to me. And it makes me like her so much more. Yeah, I think that, like, that's the thing, is that she's actually pretty chill, like, totally cares, gets it. I met B, like, before... I got like a random text message from, we were in the street in Baltimore, like literally in the street. Like I remember being in the street. We had just gone back to the, some people had just come to the city, Amnesty, I think had just come to the city to help out. And we're in the, they're in, they were like in this lobby of a hotel and I'm in the lobby of the hotel talking to the people who just come to town and this text, it's like chaos outside. The text is like, Beyonce's team, please call me back. And I'm like, I gotta like I can't call these people back right now. So I go back in the street and like later I call and like I have a call with her team and then I'm in the office. Her her office is here. Um, I'm in the office and she wasn't there that day and like they were great and then she was there the next day and it was very sweet. I, she's sitting on a couch and I walk up to her and she's like, "Hi, I'm Beyonce," and I'm like, "Hi, I'm Dre." You know, it's like very sweet. Um, she was great, and this was way before Lemonade. They hadn't hired the director yet. Like literally in the back of the on the wall is like the um, not a mood board, like a like every song was sort of like a picture in words, a storyboard. Mm, it's like a, there's like you. a storyboard of all, of the album, like of the album which you now know to be the album, sort of on the board, which was um, which was great. And like, they were sort of thinking about how to do this and like, they were incredible. And she was all about the protest. Solange was, I got arrested in Baton Rouge. Solange was there. When, when I got out of jail, I was like staying at a ho- like a place uh, and Solange and Alan were there. Like when I got out, they were great. Solange makes like amazing spaghetti. It was very, very kind. Um, so they, they've been great. And like, I was just at Miss Tina's, um, wearable art gala in, in LA. Um, and, and saw the crew again, but like really care as good as you want them to be. Like it really, you know, just like, there's not like a, there's not like a, Julius is like exactly what you think the bodyguards, you know, like everybody's sort of exactly what you think. They just do a really good job of managing themselves. And I will say the most sort of Beyonce thing that I would say publicly is like, um, she, our Christmas party two years ago. So we all get this invite, we go and it's like 
everybody's there, right? Like, so there's like a foyer to the theater. It's like we're all hanging out. And then we sit in the theater, like behind me is Smokey, literally like right behind me is Smokey Robinson. To my left is Will I Am, like in Less Twins. Everybody's there and we have no clue what's going to happen, right? Like, it's just like, it's, it's like Beyonce's holiday party hosted by Quincy Jones. So Quincy comes out on the stage. He says very kind things about Beyonce. And, and mind you, we have no, there's not like a, there's no program or anything. So then the curtain opens and it's literally lemonade. So we're like all watching lemonade again. And you're like, okay, okay. So we're in the theater, like watching lemonade. We've already seen lemonade. Cause like came out a year ago, but everybody we're watching it. Cause you're like, okay, I guess we're watching lemonade. So then the screen comes up and it's Beyonce and she like does like a 15 minute medley of her songs and she's amazing. And then she leaves the stage, the light comes on, the doors open and it's literally like the doors open to outside. <laughs> You're like, I love it. You know, it's like such a, it was such a, something that only she could do, you know, like she comes in, you watch the thing you've already seen again. She performs, is incredible. And then like the doors open and they give us like lemonade donuts like, and then we're out, literally outside. It's not even like, ha, 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 outside. It's like, like <laughs> I'm like next to Miss Tina as she gets in an Uber. Like, we're all outside. And you're like, okay. Uh, and it was very... Was, uh, was Sanaa Lathan there? Oh, that was shady. <laughs> Heard it's true, though. Um, but no, just real chill. I was just at the Oscar, uh, their Oscar party. And like, she's really sweet. It's funny, because people are... Um, People are, they just don't know what to say when they get around her, right? Like they sort of just, people just are quiet. And I think that's actually really, it's funny to watch in person. Mm. Like people just, they sort of freak out. And then when they actually see her, they just are silent. Like there's no, people just like lose their voice. Uh, So that's sort of interesting to watch happen. DeRay is awesome, and he's someone who's changing the world, and he shows us that there's no reason why any of us can't change the world. He's a teacher who cared so deeply he threw away his old life to go on the road to fight for his people. It shows me that so many of us could snap in a good way and become people who say, screw it all, I can't be silent anymore, I gotta go out and try to change the world. Thanks so much to DeRay for being there for me. Thanks to NYC PodFest for having us on. And thanks to you for listening. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please stop by and say hi. And if you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review. And tell a friend who you think would like the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Matt Ford with help from Shelby Royston and William Jolly and Chuck Marcus and Cadence 13 Studios. We're giving you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and I hope this show can help you get there. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down because he doesn't put any seasoning in his potato salad. 